What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Ever feel like a fraud? Like what you're doing is totally fake or maybe so deceptive it borders on the criminal? A double talk, lying, and cheating are things everyone has struggled with. So as we are in a new year making commitments to be healthier people, more spiritually vibrant, what can we do to not be fraudulent? How can we move closer to the people God wants us to be? We'll be exploring this over the next few weeks with our series on fraud. We'll look at times where we feel like frauds and even times where others commit fraud against us. And now we're going to hear our scripture for today. Uh, Eric is going to read for us from the Gospel of John. This scripture is right at the beginning of the book. We would have heard this beautiful, poetic writing about the Word and how the Word was in the beginning. It was with God and it was God. John, of course, is pointing to the birth of Jesus Christ, and that all those who receive Jesus are made children of God. When we see Jesus and how he lived, we are seeing God made known to the world. Then we come to today's passage about the baptism of Jesus, where John the Baptist confesses that he feels rather unworthy of this man. Let's hear our passage now from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the throng of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But I came baptizing of water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And, and John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize of water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And from Proverbs 20:17, bread gained by deceit is sweet, but afterward the mouth will be full of gravel. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and minds to be free of fraud and full of your Holy Spirit. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over Christmas break, there was a dramatic transformation in my home. Emily, the boys, and I did not travel anywhere for Christmas. Instead, we took on a a big task at our house. For years, our family has made our home available for foster care, and because of that, we have always had one bedroom that remained a guest bedroom. Family and friends have used it as have foster children, but we have always had space for someone at a moment's notice. Because of that, Davy and Hal have always shared a bedroom together. Well, that's finally changed. We decided the time was right for each of our boys to have their own room, and we spent several days taping, painting, installing, and building new furniture. Uh, My favorite part was building Davy's bed. We were gifted this furniture set before Davy was even born, and his bed went from a crib and then could be converted into a toddler bed, and now finally, after being in a bunk bed for years, was going to use the final form, the full-sized bed. Emily and I had just finished putting it together over 10 years of hauling this thing around, and we noticed as a full-size bed, boy, this thing really isn't very secure. It, just, uh, it has just a few screws that are holding the whole thing together, and even moving it into position, it was making loud, creaking, cracking sounds. So we told Davy hey, you really can't jump on this bed. It could break it. And Davy was totally on board, no jumping. Uh, Then the next project after the bed was installing a new ceiling fan. If there is any one thing that scares me when it comes to home repair, it's electricity. Uh, I'm always nervous, always anxious, and my family knows how overly cautious I am about it. But surprisingly, the whole thing goes smoothly. The fan brace is perfect. The wiring is no problem. I get everything screwed in and ready to go. I go to turn on the power and voila. Everything works the way it's supposed to on the first try. The lights turn on, the fan starts spinning, and Davy, he's right there standing on the bed looking up at the ceiling fan. He says, good job, Dad, jumps up with his hands in the air, and he lands, and boom, he breaks the bed. The bed frame has cracked in half and needs some serious repairs ten years of hauling this thing through three homes, and it breaks in 20 minutes. That bed tricked us. We were deceived. We thought for all those years it was in good condition, worthy to be a full-size bed, but one jump was all it took to bring it down. Of course, it's not just objects that deceive us. Sure, there's cheap clothing and discount food that tastes kind of funny and electronics built to break down. But besides all this, people can be frauds too. Sometimes we come across frauds in life, people who are not what they appear to be, uh, people who act in ways that we think, wow, that is not what I expected from you. One jump and you're a totally different person to someone. 
As you know, we have new leaders in the church here, and I started this week calling some of them. Uh, I, I called one. He didn't answer the phone, and later when I got a call back, he said, Oh, sorry, I saw your cell phone area code was 215, which is from Pennsylvania, and I was sure it was someone trying to sell me a warranty on my new car. Uh, he was watching out for frauds. I totally understand that response. I just hope he saved my phone number for the next time that I call. Uh, people try and sell junk warranties, steal your credit card, or pretend to be someone that they are not. It's all fraud. It's all deception to get something that they didn't earn. But today, I don't want to talk about the people out there who might be doing something wrong. I want to talk about us in here. Do we ever feel like frauds? Do we ever do things or say things that cause people to say, whoa, you are not who I thought you were? Are we sinning when we do that? Does our double talk or our insecurity cause us to miss out on who God wants us to be? There's a lot of research out there on self-worth and people's sense of worthiness. It probably doesn't surprise you that low self-worth can lead to poorer physical health and reduced ability to recover from an illness. It makes us less likely to do things that are good for us, like exercise or going to a doctor for a checkup. But here's one that might be a little more surprising. Did you know just the act of taking a selfie, turning the camera to take a picture of yourself, is linked to higher self-objectification and lower levels of self-esteem. A study with hundreds of female students found 79% said they were dissatisfied with how they looked. There is this rampant frustration and discontent with who we are in our society. When we make mistakes or hurt people or surprise them with behavior we don't even like in ourselves, it can lead to this terrible downward spiral. We do something wrong, we feel bad, we commit to do better, and then inevitably we fail. We mess up again and make things twice as bad as they were before, which can make us feel worse. And on and on and on it goes. I wonder if John the Baptist felt this way a little bit. In John 1, the religious leaders come to John the Baptist, who's been doing something very, very unusual. Uh, he's telling people to repent, to change their lives, and then he is baptizing them in water. He's at the Jordan River, and he's dunking them under the water after they have committed to changing their lives. Now, today, we might not think this is so weird. We do baptisms all the time for babies and for children and adults who commit their lives to Jesus Christ. But back then, this, is almost, this almost never happened. The only people that were baptized were people who converted to Judaism from another religion. And in ancient times, people didn't travel a whole lot. Most people lived their whole lives and died all in one town. So if you were lucky, maybe you knew one person in a whole generation who was a convert through baptism. It was just so rare. So the religious leaders come to John and they say, are you the Messiah, the, the one who will take down the Roman Empire? He says, no, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. They ask again, then, are you Elijah? Elijah was known as the master of the law. Incredi incredible miracles were expected at his return. And he says, 
no, I'm, I'm not Elijah. And I wonder at this point if he's feeling something like imposter syndrome. He's not any of these great historical figures of Israel's past. He's not all that special. Maybe he's starting to feel a little like a fraud here, making all this fuss, all this noise, without any real right to do so. Finally, they ask, well, then, are you the prophet? They're asking if he is Moses. And at that time, no one was considered greater than Moses. Even the Messiah wouldn't have been considered superior to Moses, who wrote the law and gave it to the people. I bet John the Baptist was feeling pretty low at that moment. And they ask him one final question. Why then are you baptizing people if you aren't anybody special? Why are you changing our rituals? Why are you demanding that we do things differently? How dare you tell us to live differently when you, sir, are a nobody? They do everything they can to remind John the Baptist that he is a peasant, he is poor, he has no power, no authority, and even if everyone in the world shows up to the Jordan River to see what's happening, he is a fraud. What happens next, though, this is where we learn something really important. This is where we see real power. He responds not by asserting who he is, his place in the world, and the power that he has. He says, I baptize with water, but there is one coming who I am not worthy to untie his sandal. Back then, servants or slaves would carry an important person's sandals. To say you were not worthy to untie the sandal meant John was saying he's not even worthy to be Christ's servant or Christ's slave. He's not trying to lift himself up, making himself look better. He is totally, 100% committed to lifting Jesus up. He wants the Lord to get all the credit and to get all the glory. See, John doesn't increase his self-worth by justifying himself to others. He doesn't feel better about his life because he reflected on how the words these men were telling him weren't really the truth. No, his worth is based in God. His worth is based in his identity as a child of God. In the Presbyterian Church, they have something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. In it is this teaching that asks, what is the goal of humankind? And this statement of faith says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We might say it a little differently in the United Methodist Church, but the point is the same. We exist to praise God. Our life mission is to glorify God. It's not to evangelize. It's not to love others more. It's not to avoid pain or feel better about ourselves. Our singular goal is to honor and bless God. Everything else comes second to that. So as we start this new year trying to be better people, making resolutions, and let's be honest with ourselves, probably failing at keeping those resolutions, you don't have to feel bad about those failures. Your self-esteem and self-worth doesn't have to plummet. Your worth comes from God. You are invaluable because God loves you, and when you put God first, the rest of this stuff 
doesn't matter so much. This week we had three memorial services earlier in the week. One was for Roger Marquet, then Saturday Jim Hughes and Charlotte Ewing. Each person was deeply loved and celebrated this week. But something that stuck with me as I listened to the children and grandchildren of these people talk was how those memorialized, in their wisdom, didn't let the little things get in the way. They didn't sweat the small stuff. A Roger's son, Jeff, said his dad, when he was a soccer coach, would give every kid his turn on the field. He had a superstar on his team who would go on to play soccer at West Point, and another kid who didn't have, and I quote, an athletic bone in his body. It drove parents nuts when Roger would substitute the very best player on the team for the very worst. When parents complained, he would say, every child gets his turn. He didn't let what people said get to him because he had a, a higher principle at work in his life. The same is true when it comes to our own self-worth. We can do the things that experts encourage. Sure, we can practice self-compassion. We can join a, a self-esteem writing group. We can say affirmations in the mirror every day and remind ourselves of the things that we like about ourselves. A journaling is good. You can check your self-esteem levels. That's good. But it's even better when we do those things knowing that God is our beloved and nothing can separate us from his great love. Your worth comes from God, and when you commit to that first, everything else is able to fall into its proper place. Glorify God first. Let that be your guiding principle, and let the rest fall where it may. Now let's end with this. Uh, last year, Scotty Scheffler was ranked 15th in the world in golf in the PGA Tour. But he still hadn't won a major championship on the tour. Then on April 10th, it, it, he finally did it. He became a Masters champion. In the press conference after his win, he had his new green jacket on, which is awarded to the Masters winners. And he was asked how he can work so hard and be so competitive without letting it define who he is as a person. And Scotty had this to say. The reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like my wife Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. All I'm trying to do is glorify God and that's why I'm here and that's why I'm in this position. That's a pretty good statement of faith, isn't it? When we feel like we've messed up, when we've come up short, when we lose the big tournament, or even if we win it, that's not where our worth comes from. Our value, our virtue, our meaning comes from God and praising him. As you serve God, know that he loves you and seeks the very best for your life. Let the Holy Spirit descend on your life like a dove. You are not a fraud when you have God. 
So let your worth flow from God, and you'll find your life isn't just better or more successful. You'll find that it has infinite value. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.